Jenks and I want to thank you for joining me for this last instalment of this series of Little Classics Rants. Today's rant is on the Odyssey. What on earth could I say about the Odyssey that will fit into 10 minutes, you might be thinking. And in fact, what could I possibly say about the Odyssey that hasn't already been said by someone else? And actually, yes, you might be right. The Odyssey is written about, adapted, rewritten, referenced, reinterpreted, criticised and pretty much reused all the time. In novels, poetry, comics, including my own, film, television, animation, video games and pretty much every other media you can think of. And that's my point. Bear with me. The Odyssey is one of the best, most enduring stories that there is in Western literature. My copy of the Rouse translation, I have a lot of translations, even has the greatest adventure story ever told emblazoned across its 70-year-old cover. It's definitely one of my all-time favourites, so much so that I taught it every year for a decade and I didn't even mind. Even though it can be definitely argued that in fact its eponymous hero is deeply problematic, actually unpleasant, massively flawed in both personality and motives, and that its representation of women is horrific, all of these by modern standards, by the way, they would have been representative of views of the time and what a hero actually was. Listen to episode seven on what makes a Homeric hero for more on that topic. It doesn't even matter, though, because it's a story that's not going anywhere. The word Odyssey even now just means a long actual or metaphorical journey of any character with bumps along the way, despite originally meaning the story of Odysseus. Kind of like how labyrinth now means a really big maze, when the word actually means place of many labyrinth ritual axes. Okay, yeah. And yet, and here's my point. The bit of the Odyssey that is being used in about 90% of these references, remakes, reinterpretations and such is the narration of Odysseus' adventures between Troy and Ithaca. And that only makes up four chapters out of the total 24. That's only one-fifth of the entire epic. And even so, when it's adapted, referenced, etc., people get it wrong. They skip bits out. They rewrite what happens. Like, why would you do that? It's already brilliant. There's an unbelievably dreadful film version that shall remain nameless. Okay, there are several, but this one is the one that's three hours long. And yet only about half of what happens in the adventure section is even in it. They've just added made-up bits from the Trojan War and some embarrassing what's happening at home sections. And the Odyssey already has bits of the Trojan War and what's happening at home sections in it. But they're in the bits that no one seems to bother reading or referencing or they'd know. Honestly, how arrogant the way the source material is treated. Actually, I would argue that that's relevant to my point, but it's probably better I move on or I'll just get angry. I mean, they even skipped the sirens for crying out loud. To give you an overview of what you might be missing out on if you have not read the Odyssey, the structure of the Odyssey goes like this. Book one is, of course, the exposition for the whole poem. It starts with a synopsis of the whole poem, in fact, and then goes on to give a sit rep. Odysseus is still missing, nearly ten years after the Trojan War has ended. His wife Penelope is under pressure to remarry, even though Odysseus says later she's done an amazing job of running the place on her own, because their son Telemachus is now coming of age, and also Odysseus did tell her to if he didn't come back. The young men of Ithaca want to marry the queen and are basically living in the palace until she chooses one of them, outstaying their welcome, which is bad enough, but they're also plotting to kill Telemachus, which is a terrible transgression and against Xenia hospitality. 
Those, there's a whole load of them. There are two ringleaders called Antinous and Eurymachus, and they're proper villains that you get to love to hate. You can also see how the gods are getting involved, mostly Athene, who, as the goddess of wisdom, is clever Odysseus's patron god. Then, books one to four inclusive are often called the Telemachy because it mostly focuses on his son, Telemachus, and what he's doing to try and find his father in a kind of Bildungsroman-esque quest. Athene inspires him to lay down the law to the suitors, then go to see Nestor and Agamemnon and others to get words of his father. For a start, this whole section is brilliant because you get to meet all of these Trojan War characters, including Helen, yes, that Helen, who recognises Telemachus straight away because of the likeness to his father. And that's another reason why it's such a great opening. You get to see in the characterization of Telemachus what his father Odysseus is like as their similarities are hinted at long before Odysseus even arrives in the text. For a start, when we meet both Telemachus and Odysseus individually for the first time, they're both sitting dejected on the shore. They're crying on a beach and they've never even met. Odysseus has been away for the whole 20 years of Telemachus's life, so it's so poignant. Then books five to eight are where we finally meet Odysseus. He's lost everything and has been held captive on an island for the last seven years by a minor goddess called Calypso. Yes, like that one from Pirates of the Caribbean. And yes, he is a captive because he's crying every day, he's asking to be let go and is being forced to sleep with her against his will. That's definitely coercive control by a more powerful party. And no, sex is not a payoff. And no, it's not okay as a comeuppance for him having been awful previously. And yes, when Hermes comes from Zeus to tell Calypso that she does actually have to give Odysseus up now. Her decisively accurate feminist rant about double standards for gods and goddesses having lovers, which possibly would have been there for comedy value originally, which is upsetting, is now on point. So let's give her equality here. She's terrible. Odysseus finally gets to leave, spends a superhuman amount of time in the sea after being shipwrecked by Poseidon, who bears a grudge, and then finally lands near the mythical Phaeacian city, possibly based on the historical Phoenicians, as they're both meant to be amazing sailors where he does some very clever talking that ends with him being given hospitality by the princess despite being totally, utterly naked and covered in scrunge. It's impressive. Read it closely. He's then accepted as an anonymous guest by the king and queen after some help from Athene and basically the original invisibility cloak, amazes everyone with his prowess in some games, then suddenly reveals his true identity and starts to tell the story of his adventures. That's when we get to books 9 to 12, the bits everyone thinks they know about but either doesn't completely know or knows them in kind of an altered state through all these adaptations I've been talking about. Incidentally, I've made comic strip versions of books 9, 10 and 12 amongst other books, which explain what's happening without leaving anything out. So I suggest you read those if you want to know the details, but maybe don't want to read the actual text. But for now, I'll just read you this. Book nine has three episodes, the Cocones, then into the supernatural world with the Lotus Eaters, then Polyphemus the Cyclops. Book 10 has three episodes, Aeolus and the Bag of Winds, the Lystragonians, cannibals. This is actually where he loses his other 49 odd ships. Yes, you heard me right. He has 50 ships to begin with, but he ends up alone. And apparently he's the one suffering. Yeah, okay. And then Circe, the witch goddess. Book 11, wild card. 
quest structure where Odysseus visits but does not enter Hades, gets some information about his next travels and a prediction of his future, then talks to even more characters from the Iliad, including Achilles, and learns about loads of women from mythology. And also another poignant moment where he meets his mum. Spoiler, she's dead. Book 12, prologue where Circe tells him what's about to happen next, then three episodes, sirens, literally just a paragraph, so tiny compared to the rest of the text. Then Scylla and Charybdis, just a page and a half, practically nothing. And then Hyperion's Island, where they mustn't eat the sun god's cattle, but they do, and it ends up with Odysseus alone getting picked up, half drowned by Calypso. And you know what? It's actually all a narrative. It's Odysseus's first person perspective, told as entertainment to his hosts, which means we only have Odysseus's word for it that any of it even happened. It tells us much more about him as a character than you realise, because the whole point of his narrative is to impress the Phaeacians. They've already promised to give him a ride home because that's good Zetni hospitality, but he'll get more out of them if he's someone worth helping which means we'll never know exactly if these stories accurately represent the story of how he lost his men or how he responds in a pressured situation, something that is never taken on board by film adaptations. Intrigue. Anyway, he then gets home and the entire second half of the Odyssey, books 13 to 24, is him in disguise as a beggar, gradually revealing himself to those slaves and kinsmen deemed still loyal. There's a cool story about a scar from a boar fight that he shows to people to prove who he is. Then he gets to finally know his son by plotting revenge on the suitors with him. Oh, cute. Then actually fighting the suitors in a mini war and killing the whole lot of them. Seriously, it's totally gory. There's a lot of mess to clean up afterwards. There are some Iliad quality battle deaths in there. But books 13 to 24 are also far more detailed than I'm even making out here. So here are some highlights that you should really read it for without me giving you too many direct spoilers. Argos, his loyal hunting dog, seeing him again for the last time. Tear. And the way the suitors doom themselves by treating the beggar that's actually Odysseus badly, thus breaking Xenia all over the place, on top of all their other transgressions. More love-to-hate moments. And the most incredible, bittersweet, dramatically ironic conversation between the disguised Odysseus and his wife, Penelope, where she tells him how she's tricked the suitors into waiting for her to finish fake weaving a shroud for her father-in-law. And she tells him about her prophetic dreams about her husband coming home. He's right there. And which really serves to show her to be an absolute match for Odysseus in wit and level-headedness. And who, frankly, is just also the most fantastic character, considering she's a woman in an extremely male narrative. I mean, I'm not saying she's perfectly well drawn, but she's pretty darn adequate in terms of being almost three-dimensional and a character in her own right. And some extremely good further reading to fill in her narrative is Margaret Atwood's Penelope Ed. And then there's her idea for the great bow competition. String and shoot Odysseus's bow through 12 axe heads, which, although appearing impossible, was apparently Odysseus's party trick. And how the inadequate suitors try and weasel out of it. There's also some fabulously cinematic, pathetic fallacy when Odysseus strings the bow and Zeus sends a thunderbolt to highlight the moment. Then there's the battle itself, which is a proper roller coaster, during which even Odysseus thinks he might fail, but I don't want to give too much more than that away. 
There's also an utterly horrific moment where Odysseus deems the female slaves of his household who slept with the suitors to be disloyal and sentences them to death, completely ignoring the lack of slave rights and the very reality that these relations may have been had against their will. And then Telemachus tries to impress his dad by being additionally harsh and hanging them all instead of giving them a clean death by the sword, which often mistakenly gets assumed to have been Odysseus's idea. But either way is the subject of fantastic debate in the way it's been translated by male versus female translators over the last couple of hundred years. And then there's the actual civil war that is caused by Odysseus having killed all the nobles of the country. Yes, that doesn't go unnoticed, funnily enough. It's actually how the epic poem ends. Didn't know that? Of course not. No one ever leaves it in. In fact, most of what I've just gushed about is what gets left on the cutting board or just plain rewritten. I mean, much as I dislike about 60% of the film Troy, they did actually set up Sean Bean as Odysseus with his dog Argos. I mean, what a wasted opportunity for a sequel that would definitely have at least included him reuniting with his dog. So, at the end of this last episode of this series, if you take anything away from this, please let it be read the Odyssey in as close to the original as you can, and thus enjoy and be able to understand and possibly even criticise any adaptations, references, retellings, or oh, terrible, terrible films of the Odyssey, because this story is never going away. <laughs> If you're still with me by this point in the series, well done. And if you like this episode, please be sure to go and try out the other seven episodes in this mini podcast series. If you're on Twitter or Instagram, come find me as Greek Myth Comics for similar content. And for a more visual set of ancient Greek inspired comic strip explanations, go to GreekMythComics.com. And that includes quite a lot of the books of the Odyssey. You can find articles, comics and further reading for this and all the other episodes so far at greekmythcomics.com forward slash ancient geek. And if you have any ideas, requests or even a rant of your own you'd like to join me in for the next series, please drop me a message or leave me a voicemail on the site page. <sighs> I feel so much better. Until the next series, stay safe and have a great day. Mm -hmm.